Amen, amen. Hey, you guys can be seated. Welcome to, welcome to New City Church. If you're with us for the first time, we're glad you're here. We're going to jump right into our text today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Uh, and while you're turning there, I've got a question for everyone here. Who in here is familiar with Dr. Google? Dr. Google. Well, when you, when you or a friend uh, or a kid gets sick, you start to see some strange symptoms, and you immediately Google the symptoms. You become convinced you've got something like the West Nile virus. Uh, you go to a real doctor, the real expert, and you tell them the exact medicine you need. And they say, okay. Uh, they run a few tests just to find out, no, actually you're dehydrated. Uh, you've, you, you've got food poisoning with a sunburn, and they send you home with a bottle of water and aloe. Right? Or, you know, some, something, things like this happen all the time. And sometimes we get it right because uh, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before, which inevitably means we have more self-proclaimed experts than ever before. I do something similar like this, you know, all the time, often. Uh, a few summers ago, I was in a men's tennis league uh, with some neighborhood friends. Everyone had to rank their own skill, le- skill level going into the league on a scale from one to five. You know, the fives were at the top and the ones were at the bottom. And as you win, you kind of move up the ladder. And as you lose, you go down the ladder. And the idea is to get people who are all on the same skill level playing against each other. You know, I hadn't picked up a tennis racket in probably 15 years, but uh, I played baseball growing up. I was a pretty decent hitter, you know, as a baseball player. Uh, I was pretty good at ping pong and I was pretty decent at hitting it back and forth. Um, So I gave myself a three. Inevitably, I gave myself a three. And when I go to play my first game, we were warming up. You know, my forehand was pretty good. Uh, I had a decent backhand. We were volleying back and forth. I'm feeling confident. I'm ready to play. Well, come to find out, I'm really, really bad at serving. Right, serving is, was my weakness. If I hit it hard, right, if, I, if I throw it up and hit it really hard, there's no chance it was going to go in. It was, it was all over the place. I was all over the place. And, you know, I, just, I had to, and the only way for me to get in, I would just kind of throw it up and tap it over. Like, I just had to tap it. And this immediately put me losing every single time I served, which is half of your possessions. So I was at the bottom of the ladder really, really quickly because I couldn't serve. So what do I do? I spent hours on YouTube sitting on the couch getting instructions on how to serve. And I was confident, right? I knew I could do it. It looked easy. I felt like an expert after watching a few hours on the couch watching YouTube videos because I had the knowledge. I knew what to do, but it was clear. I didn't have any experience. You know, my first game, post-YouTube instructions, I go in, again, pretty confident. Uh, Towards the end of the league, I got more experienced with serving. You know, it got better, but I think we all get this. Uh, Whether it's in sports, a job, a hobby, or a skill, and for today, as we grow in our faith, I think we can all agree that experience can sometimes be the ultimate teacher. We learn a lot through experience. We can gain a lot of head knowledge about something, But until you put what you know into use, you'll have a hard time growing in that area and improving in that area. And and Jesus, up to this point in the book of Mark, is pointing out this to his disciples. They've gained a lot of teaching. They've gained a lot of head knowledge about Jesus. But it hasn't moved from their head to their heart. Over the past few chapters, Jesus has been teaching the disciples through parables. And they knew things in their head about Jesus. They knew who Jesus was claiming to be. They were growing in understanding, but through the experience that they had had to go through from what we'll see in our text today, it becomes clear they had gaps in their faith. 
They had gaps in their faith from what they knew. There were gaps between their head and their heart, and Jesus was using an experience to reveal this to him. And something I've often heard is you find out what's truly inside a person when they get squeezed. When people go through stress or hardship, when someone gets squeezed, look to see what comes out. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good picture oftentimes on what's on the inside. The stability of something or someone is often exposed when pressure is applied. You know, old-time preachers, uh, they would often say like this, you find out what's inside the glass when you shake the table. You see, some, someone can believe that Jesus is real and still lack faith in Jesus. When push comes to shove, you find out what people truly believe when pressure is applied, when we start to shake the table. And today in our story, Jesus is putting his finger on a soft spot in the disciples' faith. And as the Bible always does, now, I believe this story will push us, and I believe it's going to challenge us and encourage us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be the end of the chapter, starting in verse 35. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have it up here on the screen so you can follow along with me as I read. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And so as we've done over the past several weeks, we're going to walk back through this, explain a few things as we go, and what we're going to ultimately see today, our big idea is Jesus' power is worthy of our trust. Jesus' power is worthy of our trust. And there are a few themes that we're going to see throughout the story, like the storm, right, the run, the run parallel with the storms of our life. There's this theme of God's power, which is in our main idea. We're going to talk about that as well. There's also this concept of faith, fully trusting in Jesus' care and love, but it all comes full circle with our big idea, seeing that even in the midst of our storms, Jesus' power is worthy of our trust. And as we've said, experiences, specifically challenging experiences, can often reveal in what and where we put our faith. So I want to be, I want to be clear here today, because when we talk about faith and trust, the, both the object and the direction of our faith is much more important than the amount of faith. Like, there's a difference. The object of our faith is different than the amount of our faith. We all need more faith, but that's a gift from God. It's hard to just muster up more faith. The way to get more faith, honestly, is by looking more at the direction and the object of our faith. But the more we look to the object of our faith, that being Jesus, the amount of our faith in Jesus often grows. So as we seek to answer this question, who is Jesus in our series, we're looking at the object of our faith. The object, and hopefully in doing so, the amount of our faith will also grow simultaneously. So today, I've essentially taken our big idea, and I've put it into two different parts to kind of structure our time. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus is all-powerful. And then number two, we're going to see that Jesus is worthy of our trust. Before we get into this story in a little bit more depth, um, something I know about this story is this is a very common story. You know, if you've grown up in church, uh, you, you may have heard this story many times. And what often comes out of this story is Jesus calmed the storm for the disciples. He can, he can calm the storm in your life too. Well, today, 
although that is very true that Jesus does have the power to calm the storms in our life, I'm going to completely reject that as our main takeaway for today because, let's be honest, sometimes our storms just don't go away. We live in a broken and fallen world where there are always storms. One storm comes and may be calmed, but there's always another storm on the horizon. Storms will always come and go, right? There will always be some sort of car trouble or sickness or relationship strife, but what is more important than the calming of a storm is what we believe about God in the midst of a storm. Because as we've said, our storms, when we're squeezed, when tension and stress come, our view of God begins to be revealed. Because the object of our faith is often misdirected in our storms. And just like we saw last week, it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about the storms themselves. It's more about what we believe in the storm. Like what stabilizes us in the storm. It comes down to how we answer this question, who is Jesus? The object of our faith. Like, how we answer that question matters. Is is Jesus just a nice man? Is he a historical figure? Or or is Jesus the all-powerful God who is worthy of our trust? That's what we have to answer. So, with that said, we're going to walk back through the story again. Look at verse 35, and we're going to go into a little bit more detail. Verse 35 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So a few, a few quick observations here that I think are important. Just to kind of wrap our minds around this text, what's going on. Look at the beginning of verse 35. He says, on that day when evening came. You know, if we go back through chapter 4, we're going to see that Jesus had been teaching all day. Right? At the end of the day, you know, it says it was evening time is what he says in the book. And it says, and, and it says the disciples took Jesus, which I find interesting because Jesus didn't lead the disciples into the boat. No, the disciples took Jesus into the boat. And then it says, another, another observation here, it says, they took him just as he was. So I'm guessing that means he didn't go home and kind of freshen up a bit, brush his teeth, grab a blanket, you know. Um, he went just as he was. It also says there were also other boats with him. All these extra details, though, I think are important and I find interesting and we'll see, later, uh, we'll see later in the story that Jesus also was asleep on a pillow. Like he just happened to have a pillow. Uh, and so all these things are interesting. And I'm pointing out all these random details from the, in the passage because it's reiterating something to us. Because it's reiterating that this is a historical encounter. Like this, this event, this really happened. And something interesting, interesting to note, if you go back to all the other historical documents that exist during this time, you know, all of Jesus' primary opponents, his biggest opponents, like the, like the rabbis of the time, uh, or, or Josephus, who was a Roman historian, uh, none of these people, none of his opponents actually denied his miracles. Some of his, big, his biggest opponents never denied his miracles, saying he didn't do them. They just tried to explain it in a different way. You know, saying it was something like black magic. Like that, was, that was an often thing they said. Why? But because his opponents observed these miracles happen. That, like they saw it with their eyes and they observed it. And for someone to say, Jesus didn't do these things, honestly, I think it would be, uh, it, we would, it would be an, it being inconsistent with, with history. You know, because even his closest opponents did not deny him doing these things. That they also, they also witnessed it. So the question at the time, the historians of the time, was never if he did it. It was always how he did it. That was what they were trying to prove. How did Jesus do these things? To write off these historical accounts would be almost like someone 500 years from now 
going in and trying to say, no, the Civil War never happened. That would be like someone trying to write off these accounts. The, the better and more logical argument would be, would be following the thinking of the opponents that witnessed it. Like these opponents witnessed what was going on, and to figure out he did it, they're trying to figure out how he did it. You know, maybe he was a, a great magician. Right? Maybe, he was a, maybe they, some called him a sorcerer. Some even said he was empowered by the devil. Like they, did, they were so confused of how these things happened. But you know, one of the more common things, I, think, I actually find this very interesting, they said he was hallucinating, or people at the time were hallucinating, which to me, that just seems crazy, because to say that an entire region was hallucinating at the same time, multiple different times, and in multiple different areas, you know, just seems crazy. So those are all the arguments that people said. So there's that, or just possibly Jesus was who he claimed to be. Jesus was and is God. And Mark knows his opponents. Right? Mark knows what the people are going to say. He wrote this book adding in these extra details without any worry that his opponents would say, say these things didn't happen. So as we go through these story, as we go through this account, we can be confident this is not a fairy tale. This is not a parable. No, it's a historical eyewitness event that really happened. It's not some mystical event that nobody witnessed. This is, this is witnessed history, forcing us to wrestle with two opposing views. Jesus is either God or he's a great magician. He's one of the two. There's nowhere, there's nowhere in between. He has to be one of them. That can somehow, like if, if he is a great magician, so how, does, how would a great magician also control the winds and the waves? So those are things we have to wrestle with. So as we jump back into this story and think about this event, we know that Jesus has been teaching, right, and his disciples Take him into a boat. And then we look at verse 37. Look at verse 37 with me. It says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So they go into the boat, and there's a major windstorm that comes up, which was pretty common for this area, just because of their geography and where they were. The boat was, the boat was filling up with water. Um, and if this were me, in a boat, in a windstorm, like something almost like a hurricane, I'd be freaking out. In this moment, I don't mean to throw my wife under the boat here, pun intended. Uh, she would probably be throwing up at this point. Um, <laughs> the girl gets nauseous in a canoe on a still lake. Right? She gets seasick just doing anything. If she goes out into the water, she's getting seasick. And I wish that, would be, that was an exaggeration, but that literally happens to her. Sorry, babe. Um, <laughs> we talked about that before. Ian. But not the Jesus' disciples. Right, this, was not, this, was not, uh, this was not something uncommon for her. Remember, many of them, many of these disciples, they were fishermen. They were used to this type of stuff. They were men of the sea. And so when we see the fear in the disciples in a second, uh, it reiterates the intensity of the storm. Like this, this is an intense storm. There was a bad storm. They were, they were in real danger. Their lives were in danger. And the, this wasn't a storm that they could just pass. They couldn't wait this one out. This was life or death. And look what Jesus is doing in verse 38. It says, But when he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now I love this. It seems so interesting to me. If, if I'm anything like Jesus in this moment, it feels like this might be the one. Because this, this characteristic of being able to sleep just about anywhere, I've got that covered. right? So that's what we see here. But just think about this. There's essentially something like a hurricane going on. And they're in a boat, right? 
holding on for their lives, crashing into the waves, wondering if the boat is going to flip. They're seeing all the other boats, because there's, remember, there's other boats in the area. They're seeing these boats crashing into the waves, slamming into the water, waves crashing into the boat. All over, there's water everywhere. And I just imagine all the other boats in the, other, in, the, in the area yelling for help, freaking out, wondering what they're going to do. And Jesus, he's just snoozing on a pillow in, in the midst of all of this, peacefully just snuggled up with a pillow in the back of a boat while water is crushing into the boat, crashing into the boat. That alone is impressive. Right? That in and of itself is, in, is impressive. And so do the disciples. Come, they, they come up to him and likely freaking out, uh, like many of us would be in this moment, saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? You see, in this moment, the disciples, they were being squeezed. They were experiencing pressure, and when they experience a life struggle, and the gap in their faith is starting to come out. Their situation, the things that they were going through, it was starting to pierce into their soul. They said, do you not care that we are perishing? They looked at Jesus, who they, they had seen already perform miracles, who had healed the paralytic, Right before this, we talked about how he healed a leper and many, many others. And they had seen what Jesus could do. They were... So they were, they were worried. They were panicked and afraid because they saw this man who they believed to be God in the midst of their life-threatening situation. They saw this man sleeping on the back of the boat, snuggled up with the pillow, appearing to not care at all about what was going on. And in that moment, they questioned whether Jesus really cared for them. They questioned how much Jesus loved them. They knew in their head that Jesus was powerful, but in their heart, they questioned his care for them. They essentially thought, Jesus, if you loved me, I would not be going through this. Why did you not protect me from this storm? Why did you not keep us safe? How could you let this happen to us? Those are some of the questions that they were likely going through their head. But you see, they started their accusation towards Jesus with the wrong premise. Because they thought if Jesus truly loved them, they would never struggle. Their life would be full of ease. But you see, Jesus knew something different. That Jesus can still love someone and also allow them to struggle. Because in the back of Jesus' head, he knew what his loving father would have him do. The struggle that God would put Jesus through at the cross. And just like Jesus' struggle at the cross, being whipped and crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross, due to the sin and the brokenness of the world, while Jesus was experiencing a horrible storm at the cross, it was also mixed with the Father's perfect love. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying, I'm not saying by any means that every single life struggle has a perfect mix of God's love. Because I think we can see that this world is broken and it's marred by sin but they can certainly reveal, and they can certainly be redeemed by God's love. Believing that a life that follows Jesus won't be mixed with storms and hardships is a failure to understand the brokenness of the world, because the world is broken. We will all have hardships, and in God's perfect love, He sent Jesus to struggle on the cross because He knew that the struggle on the cross would display a greater love for God. All the while, displaying that the world is broken displaying that this world is ravaged by sin and struggle. So, Jesus, so just like Jesus, 
at the cross displayed a greater love from God, Jesus also allows us to experience struggles so that we too can grow into a deeper understanding of God. Just think about this. If we had never, if we never experienced a financial struggle, how would we fully, we would struggle to fully understand God as our provider. If we never experienced fear, we would struggle to understand the comfort of God. If, we've never, if we never experienced rejection, we would struggle to understand the infinite acceptance of God. And something we need to understand is that God often uses our struggles and challenges to let our experiences continue to grow us and to teach us and to push us to Jesus. All the while, reminding us that this world is broken, that sin still exists, and pushing us to long for another world where all the storms will one day be vanished. That's what our struggles do. They push us to long for another world. The storms in our life are difficult and hard and challenging and remind us that the world is not the way it ought to be while also providing a unique opportunity to cling and run to the one who is over the world and has promised us great hope for another world. Just think about the disciples in the boat. They were experiencing great fear. I mean, they thought they were going to die. I think we can agree that seemed like a bad situation. Like they literally thought they were going to die. You know, the struggle was real in this moment. All the while, the God of the universe is sitting in that same boat. And in their moment of fear, they displayed a lack of faith in his care. We know, because we know they previously witnessed his power to heal, but they questioned his care. And in this moment, with their storm, their struggle, both his power and his care were in question. Think about it. If they fully believed that Jesus was God, without any gaps in their faith, believing that Jesus was both full of power and full of perfect love, that his plans are always perfect, that God knows what he's doing, their response would have probably would have been a little different. And get this. They had a visible picture seeing the calmness of God in the boat. Jesus in that moment was in complete peace, wrapped up with a, po- with a pillow. He wasn't worried about anything. But they didn't see it that way. They saw it like God was sleeping on them, not caring. You see, there was a clear gap in the object of their faith. Their faith in Jesus was shaken. They were questioning Jesus in fear instead of trusting Jesus in faith. If they really believed that Jesus was in full control of the situation, who knows, right? Maybe they would have snuggled up with him in a pillow, and maybe they would have been in a sleep in the back of the boat with him. Or at the very least, instead of the first thing coming out of their mouth being an accusation towards Jesus' love and care, instead of them questioning Jesus in fear, they would have come to him in faith. If they truly believed Jesus was who he said he was, instead of immediately questioning his care for them, they would have instead pleaded for, them to, pleaded for him to help them. Like they, they would have pleaded for help, believing and trusting that Jesus did care, that Jesus could help, believing that if anybody in the boat could help this situation, if anybody in the world could help this situation, it would be Jesus that is sitting in the boat. But no, that's not what they did. They questioned his care. They questioned his power. Instead of asking for Jesus to help them in faith, the disciples questioned Jesus in fear. But what we need to understand in all of this is that we probably would have done the same thing. 
Why? Well, for me personally, about every time I see lightning, I freak out. That's just what I do. Um, but two, because we often do the exact same thing in our everyday life. When we go through a storm in life, a challenge, something we didn't expect, I know this to be true in my own life. How easy is it to look at God and say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Just think about some of the questions that we ask. Why, why God, can we never get ahead financially? Why, God, why is this, why do I have such a difficult person in my life? Why, God, why do I not have fill in the blank, right? And honestly, asking God why, these, that's not a bad thing. We see the psalmist do this all the time. But I think from this story, we can see from this story that there's a difference. There's a subtle difference in questioning God in fear and asking God in faith. You can ask, you can ask why in both situations. But one is in fear and one is in faith. And the subtle but very simple Difference between questioning and fear and asking in faith, really simple, it's faith. <laughs> it's understanding and trusting and believing that God is actually who he says he is in the midst of a storm. How we answer the question, who is Jesus, can often be the difference between fear and faith. One of the best things that we can do in the midst of a storm is to proclaim to ourselves the truth of who God is. Right? To defeat fear with faith to look and remind ourselves of the object of our faith. Like, what do we trust in? And as we look at our story, that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. They came to him, questioning him in fear, saying, why are you letting this happen? Like, why, why are you letting this storm happen? And look how Jesus responds in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You see, in their moment of great fear, Jesus was displaying his great power. He was displaying his power. Instead of just first reprimanding, rep, reprimanding the disciples, he reprimanded the winds and the waves. That's what he did first. And in his, in his faithfulness and kindness, Jesus was displaying the characteristic of himself that they needed the most. They didn't need to hear about his power. They needed to see his power. They needed to refix their gaze upon the object of their faith in the midst of the storm. So Jesus woke, wakes, wakes up out of his sleep, and he rebukes the winds and the waves, and he calms the storm, showing and reminding the disciples that he, number one, Jesus is all-powerful. In their moment of fearful trembling, when they truly believed about Jesus was coming out, the very first thing Jesus did was display his divine power. Jesus didn't tell them that he cared. He showed them that he cared. Jesus was putting on display that he is truly God. That he's not only a great teacher, as they called him in the story, he's more than that. He's showing them that he is over creation itself. He's revealing to his disciples, as it says in the book of Colossians, I love this, Colossians 3, 14 through 17, that Jesus, this is what it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers or in authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So just think about that. Not only can Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves, but Jesus created the wind and the waves. Not only did he create the wind and the waves, but Jesus existed before the wind and the waves existed. 
And Jesus holds the winds and the waves in his hands. So what Jesus did by calming the storm, honestly, it was a small thing for Jesus. But what Jesus was doing in this moment was what his, what, what his teaching was not doing. He could tell them all day long about his divine power, but he wanted them to experience and witness his divine power. It's one thing to know about God's power. It's another to see it, to experience it for yourself. Up to this point, they were gaining knowledge, but their faith hadn't been tested. Leading up to this, they had seen his power displayed through other people, through other people's struggles. But in this instance, Jesus put them through a significant struggle, a storm, so they could understand God's power for themselves. Through the disciples' struggles in a storm, Jesus was displaying for them what they couldn't quite grasp before. He was using experience to teach them something. Their experience of hardship helped them understand what they couldn't fully grasp without it. So a question we need to ask, what is it about Jesus today that you, you need to be reminded of in your storm? Looking back on a challenging situation or possibly even preparing yourself for a situation, what is it about Jesus that you need to fix your eyes on more intently? Right? Is it his power? Is it his care? Is it his provision? Is it his counsel? Is it his wisdom, his character? What is it? What is it about Jesus that we need to refix our gaze, looking, re-looking at the object of our faith? It's just food for thought. But for our story today, kind of switching gears a bit here, let's think about this a little bit further. Let's think about how just how Jesus was displaying his power. The way in which he displayed his power to those watching, to his critics, his opponents, because remember, this, this couldn't be a coincidence. It had to be divine power. This is, something, this is something that a magician just could not do. Because just think about this. If the wind stops in a storm, like when the wind stops, like if, you, if you're looking at a storm and the wind stops, the waves are still going a little crazy in the midst of a storm. So if, if the winds completely stop, the storms are, there's, there's still a storm surge that's coming. Right? Showing, showing, but Jesus, when he, when he calmed them both completely, he, he was showing that Jesus is not just powerful, but his power is overall. He's all powerful. Because you can't, only God, only something divine can stop both the wind and the waves simultaneously. You can't, like, that's something a magician could not do. Jesus is displaying the qualities of God. He's showing that he's the same God that created the world, that he's over the wind and the waves. And then look what Jesus said next in verse 40 and 41. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds, the wind and the sea obey him? So after he showed them his divine power, doing something that only God could do, and after everything settles, right, the, the wind and the waves have stilled, everybody has kind of calmed down. You know, I think the people in the other boats, they were probably pretty thankful too. And they were watching on, the disciples could breathe, because let's be honest, all rational thinking goes out the window when we're all fearful and afraid and scared. Right? In moments of fear, Every, everything rational goes out, so everything calms down. And that's when Jesus looks at them, when everything settles, and Jesus comes full circle in his teaching, in, in his teaching moment and points out the gap in their faith. He doesn't reprimand them for questioning him. He, didn't have to say, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to say a word because once he calmed the storms, that said enough about Jesus' care for them. 
He showed them that he cared, but then he pointed out the problem. He, he pointed out their lack of faith, the gap in their faith, and says, why are you so afraid? Why do you still have no faith? Because it became evident that their faith was the issue. And, and I think what happens next is actually a bit ironic. In verse 41, it says, they were filled with great fear. They moved from being fearful of their lives to then being filled with great fear. At the surface, it seems a bit odd, but when we think about this a little bit more, think about this. They moved from being fearful of a situation to completely fearing God himself. Fearing a situation to fearing God himself. The one, it was one of those moments when they looked at each other and just says, whoa, like what just happened? Who is this man? And it caused them to ask this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It caused them to ask the question, who is Jesus? Because Jesus displayed his power. Jesus displayed his power. It took the object of their faith, of the storm, back to himself. And in doing so, it increased the amount of their faith. They thought they knew Jesus. They referred to him as teacher. They respected him. But it became clear in that moment that he's more than a teacher. This man, Jesus, he must be God. It became in that moment, it became clearer to the disciples that if Jesus is God, if Jesus is truly over creation, it became clear to them that Jesus is the same God displayed in the Old Testament that created the world, that helped them escape from Egypt, that parted the sea, that provided manna from heaven, that showed up in his perfect timing, time and time again. He proved himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All these things that they see about God in the Old Testament, it becomes rushing in in that moment. And in this man, they look at... That, that, if this man that they were in the boat with, if this man is the same God, the disciples were left in fear and awe, realizing that Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a healer. He's more than an all-powerful being. Number two, Jesus is worthy of our trust. Because they began to realize that if Jesus is God, they knew that it didn't take much effort for him to calm the wind and the waves. Like that was a piece of cake for God. Because they knew that he created the world with his breath. That's what he did. He created the world with his breath. But when he calmed the wind and the waves for the disciples, he was showing more than his power. He was revealing that he cared. Time and time again, Jesus proved himself to be faithful to the disciples, but even greater than parting the Red Sea, providing manna, food from heaven, and calming a terrible storm. The greatest display of both Jesus' power and love, proving that he is worthy of our trust, was displayed at the cross. Because at the cross, just like the disciples needed Jesus to prove his love and care for them by calming the storm, defeating the storm, at the cross, by Jesus dying a criminal's death, Jesus defeated the greatest storm this world has ever seen. Jesus accomplished something much more difficult than calming the wind and the waves. Jesus defeated sin and death. The disciples were questioning both his love and his power. And in the midst of the storm, the disciples needed to see and understand more fully both his love and his power. And when Jesus calmed the storm, it was not a promise that he would calm all the storms in their life. It was a picture of Jesus showing a glimpse, of Jesus showing a small fraction of both his love and his power that he would need to calm the greatest storm in our life, the storm of our sin. Because there's no question about it. Just like the disciples in the boat, our sin leaves us in a state of desperation. Our sin, 
leaves us needing help, leaving us needing to go to the one who has the power to defeat the storm of sin. And just like the disciples came questioning God, wondering if he cared for them, when Jesus stayed on the cross, he was displaying his perfect love. Because remember, Jesus hung on the cross with great power at his disposal. Just think about this. Jesus stayed hanging on the cross with the same power that calmed the wind and the waves. He, he could have said in an instant, while being whipped and nailed to the cross, he could have said before anyone ever laid hand on him, just like he said in the boat, he could have easily said in that moment while he was hanging on the cross, or before ever, anyone ever took him to go to the cross, he could have said, with the same power that calmed the storm, peace be still. He could have done it. And they would have stopped in an instant. He had thousands of angels at his disposal, yet he stayed on the cross. Because Jesus knew God had a bigger plan. Jesus knew he had a better plan. Jesus knew that this world was greater than the greatest storm of being crucified and killed. That was Jesus' greatest storm. Jesus' struggle on the cross was far greater than the disciples' struggle in the boat, but he knew that it was worth it. Because he knew that just like the disciples were questioning his love and care, Jesus knew that there were billions of people all over the world for centuries to come who would ask that exact same question that the disciples would ask in the boat, except on a far bigger scale, on a much grander scale, on an eternal scale. For centuries to come, Jesus knew that people like you and me all over the world, Jesus knew that if he came off that cross, if Jesus calmed the greatest storm of Jesus' life by leaving the cross, Jesus knew that if he did not die on the cross and defeat sin and death for centuries to come, people would continue to ask, Jesus, do you care that we are perishing? Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Do something. If he stayed on that cross, if he, if he stayed on that cross, if he never went to the cross, people would continue to ask that question, but Jesus knew it would be an eternal perishing, not just a temporary perishing. So what did Jesus do in the midst of his suffering on the cross? He did exactly what he did in the boat. He perfectly displayed his love and his power by looking at sin and death in the eye and looking at it and rebuking it and saying to Satan while he's on the cross, he says to Satan, peace be still. You have no power over me. And you have no power over those who trust in me. Brothers and sisters, the storms of our life are not a picture of whether or not God cares for us. The storms of our life are a picture that the world is broken. We can't look at the storms of our life and wonder if God cares for us. Because God perfectly displayed his love and care for us at the cross. While the brokenness of this world produces storms of chaos, chaos of sin, chaos of of disorder and evil, in and through the gospel, God turns the chaos of our sin into perfect peace and stillness and order. That's what God does at the cross. He takes craziness and turns it into order. I know and I'm very aware that storms of our life are difficult. Our storms are challenging and painful, and, and sometimes they're just flat-out evil, marred by the curse of the sin in this world. But as we've seen today, somehow and in some way, maybe we can see it or maybe we'll never understand why. But one thing I know to be true is that God uses the storms in our life to show our need for a different world. We need to long for a different world. God uses the groanings of this world to push us to long 
and to groan for the world that is to come. God uses the groanings of this world to push us to Jesus in desperation, to worship and in holy fear. The troubles of the storms of life remind us of our need for a Savior. Right? That we need Jesus. And so for everyone here in this room, as we close out our time, we're yet again faced with this question, who is Jesus? <laughs> and as we've seen, Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is over the wind and the waves. He's over creation. He's defeated sin and death, proving secondly that Jesus is worthy of our trust. And so it's a simple question for us tonight. <laughs> Do we trust him? Do we trust him? How we answer the question that comes up in verse 40 that says, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? How we answer that question, how we answer that question, that who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him, it matters. And for the person who's not a Christian in the room, how you answer this question, this makes an eternal difference on your life. If you reject him and continually question him, the Bible is pure. The chaos of sin produces an eternal perishing. An eternal perishing. But trusting in Jesus is more, it's an eternal question. But it's much more than just an eternal question. It's a gift to be delighted in today. Although we can't say that Jesus always calms the storms in our life, we can trust that he will eternally calm every storm when we see him face to face in heaven. And in this world today, there is, however, through our faith in Jesus, there can be found a peace and a stillness and a calmness that can be found in the midst of a storm. Every single day we can come to Christ in the gospel. And every single day we have access to the great counselor that can provide peace and stillness in our storms. And I pray that if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I pray that you would do that today. And then finally, for the Christian in the room, whether you're in a storm, coming out of a storm, we're about to go into a storm because there's always storms on the horizon. Our view of God, our object of faith, how we daily answer the question, who is Jesus? How we daily answer that question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It makes a difference in the storm. Because when we understand the grandeur and the power and the majesty and the awe and the glory of God, when we're, when we're when we're in worshipful awe of God, when the object of our faith is put in the right direction towards Jesus, when, when it's not misguided, when, when the object of our faith is not misguided by the storms of life, all of a sudden, the storms of life, although still difficult, they're minimized in view of the grandeur and power in all of God. When we continually look to the power of the cross, when we're reminded of his love and care for us revealed on the cross, instead of questioning God's care because of a storm, we can run to God in faith despite the storm, in the storm. Listen, it's, it's clear from our passage today that we serve a powerful God and a loving God who's worthy of our faith and our trust and worship. We can also be confident that Jesus' power is worthy of our trust. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that as we come to you today, we pray that we would seek to have a greater understanding, a greater view of God in the midst of our storms, that we would have a great uh, fervor towards God, that the object of our faith would long to see Jesus day in and day out. Father, I pray that uh, if there's anyone in this room today that has not put their trust and their faith in Christ, I pray that, 
they would be reminded today that Jesus is both full of love and both full of care. And it was perfectly displayed for them at the cross. Father, the gospel is good news. It's the greatest news that we could ever trust in. So Father, we pray that we would worship you today in awe and in fear, being thankful for what you have done for us at the cross. We, we need you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.